Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Very well. Bit, a bit harassed, if I'm being honest. I've got a whole lot of things going on just now. I'm heading off to Glasgow this afternoon for the World Cycling Championships. So I've got to pack the bag and get all the bits and bobs, all the things. It's a 10 or nearly two-week trip. So, um, yeah, trying to get all the various outfits and things. But, yeah, apart from I'm that, looking forward planning. to it. I've just yeah. done that. Um, I don't know if you have the holiday juggle as well, but I've just, I feel like I've, it feels like about lunchtime because of getting kids out. Because my wife was, um, quite often we sort of share the, the duties, but she wasn't around. So I had to get one off to some house, then drive my other son to the station and he's off to Cheltenham to watch a Gloucestershire game, which he's loving because he's being independent with his mates. And yeah, cool. uh, so I just got back here about five minutes ago. So I was thinking it's one of those sort of slightly hectic mornings. But it'd um, uh, be good fun. Looking forward to chatting to our guest though. Who have we got today? We've got Adam Hills, who um, I guess for me, maybe different for you, but London 2012 is when I first think of him, when Last Leg uh, emerged um, on our scenes. You know, the Paralympics took off in a way no one else expected. And this show was sort of as almost as successful in its own right because it was so interesting and quirky and different how it challenged our perspectives of of, of disability and Paralympians, etc. and wasn't afraid to ask difficult questions, but wrapped up in an amusing way with loads of different guests and it's since evolved since that. Um, and I, I think yeah. it's fantastic on that. Did, did you watch that or you were yeah, in your yeah. post-London no, 2012 haze? Yeah, definitely. It's kind of nostalgic actually thinking about the last leg, although it's more part of the, the Paralympics. It was... Um, yeah, it, it signified that time, and 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 it's been so successful. It's it's you know carried on obviously, um, and yeah, he's he's one of these Aussies that we've kind of embraced as one of our own, isn't he? It's good we've got we've got him the day after the Ashes and uh, England's triumph yesterday. So I don't know what he'll have to say about. Do you that. know what? I'm embarrassed to admit I know nothing about cricket. Tell me what's happening. I, I, it's, it's happening in the background. I've got. I know the Ashes are on. It was a five, five match series. The test. Yeah. That's what Ashes always is. Home and away, yeah. different times. England went behind two 0 against Australia, who are the best Test side in the world. They'd won the World Test Championships against India, so prove that. You don't come back from 2-0 against the Australians. But England then won the third test and would have comfortably won the fourth, but then heavy rain happened in Manchester, which you're probably familiar with. And so the last two days didn't, you know, there was nothing nothing to play. And so it went, so they'd retained the urn, the ashes, because they'd won the last one. So you retain it, but England had a chance for sort of respectability and what people would call a moral, moral, moral victory to win the last one and draw. And right. it looked like they were cruising and then suddenly Australia batted really well. And then Stuart Broad announced his retirement and then he ended his batting, his last ever shot, he hit six. Sorry, Sorry Stuart Broad announced Stuart his Broad retirement announced as in he was, from his career. This was going to be his last game. He announced, he came to the decision on During, the Friday, announced it on the Saturday. Last day was going to be, you know, yesterday. Wow. 
in his last ever ball faced in cricket, he hit a six. And then he was given the ball at the end, uh, just as the game was turning to England. And he got the last two wickets, including one with his final ball ever in test cricket. So it was like this wow. crazy fairy tale. So, um, yeah, wow. br brilliant. So I'm sure we can berate so, Adam on being Australian maybe today. So they tied the series in? Yeah, so tied series and they went out. It's a bit like when Scotland beat England 0-0 in the football. <laughs> yeah, we can claim, claim a bit. So. But this one took 25 days, whereas that one was only 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, we're still talking about it now. But yeah, that's <laughs> so, great. Yeah, so Maybe okay. I should be watching cricket. It sounds quite exciting. It's, it's, I mean, I know you've never really got into it, but it's, it's different to how it's ever been, the test cricket, because you've probably heard them calling it Baz ball. Brendan McCullum, who's known as Baz, is the coach of England at, at Kiwi, and his philosophy is this Baz ball, this much more aggressive type of playing test cricket, almost an ODI one-day way of approaching the game. You just trust yourself, and, and you'll get out sometimes, and you'll have some bad moments. But England have stuck to this philosophy, and everyone said they'd come unstuck against Australia. But they didn't, you know. They were level, mm. and it's sort of... It does deserve to be level. Both sides were so incredibly good. There was never any session where anyone ever got away from each other. And I just thought it was brilliant. Brilliant advert for Test Cricket. So it's worth watching maybe some highlights. It's like a five-minute thing just to see the drama of it, how it ebbed and flowed on that last Test. The only time I've ever really got drawn into cricket was when we were out training in Australia when the Ashes were on because it mm -hmm. seemed like it was much bigger. Like the media really get into it. It's on the front pages and the back pages in Australia when the Ashes are on. And... Everywhere you go, every shop you go into, everyone's mocking the fact that they're beating the England team. And I'm like, well, come on, I'm Scottish. I don't, I don't even know. I don't follow cricket. There's <laughs> a cricket game, mate. Yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, God. But it, it's, I don't know. It, it seems, is that is that a fair thing to say that it's a bigger sport in Australia than it is I think, over here? I think they go mad for it there. But actually, if you were to look at the papers today, I'd say every single one will have Stuart Broad on the front and the back. You know, it mm. is it's big and I think it's built up and up and up and up. And if you see the attendances, I went to day one of the Oval and the atmosphere was great. It was sort of flat to start because nothing really happened. And then as soon as something happens, just it just comes alive and people are excited and talking about it. I think everything, every single day has pretty much been sold out. Mm. Um, it's hard to compare. I can't ever think if I've been in Oz when the Ashes have been on. No, I haven't. But yeah, they love beating the English, so... Yeah, well, they do. Sports. Yeah, they're very preoccupied with beating the English, aren't they? It's like a... or, the, or the British when it comes to cycling, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's been good, great rivalries over the years. Yeah. It's quite exciting now with the world starting, what, in three days' time. Um, all the bikes... So before the Olympic Games, you have to, to, you have to brought out any new kit before every Olympic Games and used it in competition. You can't just turn up at the Olympics with a brand new bike and something fancy that, yeah. that kind of moves the game on. So this is the last chance that all the countries have to for the homologation rules mm -hmm. and stuff to, to bring a new bike in. So all the new bikes, I've seen all these pictures in training now of all the, the Australian team, the Brits have got a modification on their bike, the Japanese, the Americans. Um, Ma magic wheels Malaysians. again. Magic wheels. <laughs> it's, they're getting them, the bikes. The bikes are all starting to go... Yeah, very. It's they're looking less and less like a traditional bike all the time. So the purists are getting a bit disgruntled by it. Like you know, it doesn't look like a bike. Um, but there's. Sort of do you think someone will come? Do you think someone will come in and say there's a limit at this point? Because that's quite often um, happens. Someone push, yeah. push the boundaries, and then someone comes in and tries to rein it back a bit. Yeah, I think the UCI, who are the, the governing body, they mm -hmm. will kind of go at some point. Do you know what this is? We we want a bike to look like a bike. Um, yeah. But it is interesting when you have they haven't got a free reign because there are massive constraints over the dimensions of the tubing and, and you know various regulations but it started with the british team they've got these really wide front forks and then the rear yeah, stays to match it and then other countries are copying that design now so it's yeah it's interesting quite exciting
So, yeah, we'll get Adam up in a second. Let me just... Ah, here we go. Hey. Hey. How you doing? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Very well. Excellent. Great to Excellent. see you. Thanks for joining us. No worries. I'm just trying to get a good background for you. So where are you just now? Uh, there you go. What if I go that way? Um, I'm at uh, the um, office of um, Open Mic Productions, which is where we make The Last Leg. Uh, oh, cool. We were just chatting Last Leg because it seems... Uh, like it become an institution pretty quickly, didn't it? It's it's kind of a weird one because it feels like we have little spurts of it. Of it, is that we've this this particular series we've noticed that people watch the show. Like Robbie Williams is a fan of the show, <laughs> and Mel C. And we had Brian Cox on, and I was stopped in the street by Biff, the the two of the guys from Biffy Clyro. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of it maybe it's taken a while to reach us because we're in the little bubble when we make it. And where did the idea come from? Was it was it your concept, or were you approached to do it, or how did it all begin? Um, so it all began uh, in 2012 when I was asked. I was approached to host a late night Paralympic wrap up show on More Four, so not even on Channel Four. Um, and I think they approached me because I had I had um, hosted the opening and closing ceremony broadcast for Australian TV of the 2008 Paralympics. So they kind of said, do you want to do this thing on more for no audience midnight after the Paralympic play? And I was like, yeah, sure. We negotiated a deal, all that kind of stuff. And then they had a big press launch at Channel 4 and I hosted the press launch. And I had I had like a 15-minute stand-up routine about the Paralympics that I'd been doing on stage. So I did the whole thing. And at the end of it, Channel 4 then basically called my manager and went, actually, that was really good. Maybe it's not more for, maybe it's the primetime Channel 4, 10.30 every night show. Wow. wow. Which was cheeky because we'd signed a contract for a show on More 4. <laughs> um, so then it was just going to be me hosting the show. And then I said, well, I'd like to at least have a bit of an audience there because I play better with an audience. And then we couldn't really find any guests because, to be honest, no one wanted to come on and make jokes about disabilities. because they were <laughs> <laughs> So the first week... We had Josh Whittacombe doing the medal table. We had, I think we managed to get Freddie Flintoff for the first episode. And we had Alex Brooker, who was meant to be just a journalist for Channel 4 because they discovered him as far as part of their disability drive. And then, so literally after the first show, the commissioning editor came into the, to the um, broadcast centre and went, right, we've changed our minds. It's the three of you. As wow. a team, because <laughs> when, when the three of you were on set together, it really worked. So we want the three of you as a team every night for the rest of the Paralympics. And so it was kind of an accident. Like, do you know what I mean? Like you couldn't, if you would pitch three blokes with four legs talking about the news, it would never have worked. <laughs> yes. But, no, it's amazing though how it's become an institution and how it, it's synonymous with the Paralympics. And, and it also, for me, I get nostalgic when I see the last leg, it brings me back to 2012. To, to a time when it just seems like, yeah, well, for me personally, it was a, a great era. But, yeah, you guys seem to have, have just really found something that, that's worked and worked incredibly well. And and I remember 2012. I think, I think you're right. I think there is that. There's a bit of that. Everyone remembers that summer. And I think it was, it was helped because of the, the English pessimism. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember in the months leading up to the Olympics, everyone in London was convinced they were going to make a mess of it. Cab drivers were talking about how awful it was going to be. Oh, it's going to, we're going to ruin it. And then when it worked and, and when it was amazing, I think everyone off the back of it was like, oh, that was great. Oh, I wish we had something else like that. 
yeah. then the Paralympics came along and they went, and we do. So, <laughs> but I, I still have a memory of the bus parade through the city. And I remember seeing you, Chris, on that bus and kind of, I remember looking at you and kind of saying g'day and you said hello back. And I was like, how does, I think he might watch our show. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I don't know, for so many angles. You're absolutely right about the under-promise, over-deliver. You know, we, we went into it. People were, you know, living in London, were moving out. I don't want to be in London. It's going to be chaotic. I'm going to get away, have a holiday while the games are on. You know, the transport's yeah. going to be off. It's going to rain every day. And it, for me, it was the moment when the, the opening ceremony began and we suddenly realised, first of all, hang on, this is this is brilliant. Second of all, look at all the things we've got to be proud of. And, and do you know what? Maybe we could make a go of this maybe this is going to be better than we thought and then and there were there were all the you know queries about were we going to win any medals were the results going to be any good i remember seeing the front page of i think it was the sun on day two and it was the headline was where are the medals and because we hadn't won a gold medal yet and then i think it was at day three the first gold medal happened and and then of course it was like a flood you know once the floodgates opened it was the medals came thick and fast but but from a paralympic perspective so I'd, I'd been, I mean, I went to Sydney in 2000, um, was my first games. And I, speaking to a lot of my teammates who competed at Paralympics in Atlanta and even in, in Barcelona, sit talking about events they go to when there was literally a few hundred people in the stadium. And, you know, this was the biggest event of their life. And there was, there were no crowds, very little TV coverage, you know, a few column inches in the back of the newspapers. And that was it. And then you, you came into London Paralympics. And it was every single ticket was sold that, you know, that the whole athletic stadium cheering on Johnny Peacock or, you know, it, it was just, just amazing. And it just seemed like a, a watershed moment for, for Paralympic sport. Yeah. I coined a phrase at the time that in Sydney, Sydney was the first time Paralympians were treated like equals and London was the first time they were treated like heroes. Mm. For Very me, true. yeah, for me, it was, um, you know, I, I was in Sydney during the Olympics and Paralympics, so I saw what that, you know, the, the buzz that that created. But my first real Paralympic experience was Beijing, and it completely blew me away. That opened my eyes to what disability sport is about. I always thought, I mean, when I was a kid, I was asked to, you know, trial for the Paralympics, but I was 12. I didn't think I was disabled enough. Like, I'm only missing a tiny, a, a little bit of my foot. I had no idea that there were all these categories. I thought I was going to be running against people with no legs. And I thought, well, that's not, that's not fair. And then I got to Beijing and kind of went, oh, no one here thinks they're disabled. Everyone's yeah. just cracking on with life. And then so by the time I got to London, I knew what people were in for um, as far as the sport goes. But for me, the moment in the opening ceremony when Paralympics GB came out and We Can Be Heroes played and fireworks went off over their heads. That's the first time I'd seen people like me, people with disabilities, be treated like heroes. And literally, while the song We Can Be Heroes was playing. So, you know, it, it was a defining moment for Paralympic sport and for and for disability awareness, I think. And and I think that's the joy of the Paralympics. And that's the maybe foreseen, but probably unforeseen consequence or probably foreseen consequence of Dr. Ludwig Gutmann, when he came up with the idea of the disabled games at Stoke Mandeville, you know, I think it was 1948, um, it, it creates a little bubble of disability awareness every four years in a different city. 
And so I remember being in Beijing and walking around and I remember walking through the Forbidden City and seeing a guy being pushed through on a wheelchair because they've made it accessible because you have to for the Paralympics. And same at the Great Wall of China. There were people in wheelchairs that could finally see the Great Wall of China. So it's not just the little, you know, we saw it happen in London. It's not just the sport. It's the disability awareness bubble that then kind of um, it's like a sonic boom that just goes out from it. Because I'd never um, done a Paralympics as a sports journalist. I worked for the Evening Standard. And the first Paralympics I did was London 2012. And having done the Olympics, I had no real concept of how it be received. And the two things that struck me was the sheer volume of noise every time a British athlete was announced. Didn't matter if there was someone who was going to come eighth in their heat of whatever. The, the volume of noise was ridiculous. And the second was when you were in the mix zone and you're kind of live learning someone's story. And it doesn't matter if they were British or whatever. I remember an American swimmer. I can't remember the guy's name, but he, had the most awful story of standing on an IED and friends of him killed. And he talked about it so eloquently. And I remember everyone just, there were about six or seven of us around this guy. And then all of us just walking off in silence, just totally wow. taken aback by this. And, and this just happened every part of every day, all these amazing stories. And journalistically, it was just incredible and surprising, I think, to see it sort of, yeah, took my breath away a bit. Well, sport, you know, sport at its best is drama. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's theatre. Um, but when you add a disability, when you're talking about disability sport, the drama's inbuilt. And some, sometimes, sometimes there's not drama. Sometimes, you know, you hear of a sports person who just goes, I was really good at a thing and I worked incredibly hard at it and I became amazing at the thing. And I mean, that's an incredible story in itself. The amount of work and sacrifice, as you well know, that goes into getting to that level. But when you throw in, oh, and I stepped on a landmine or, you know, and I was born with cerebral palsy it just creates a, a slightly different story, as you say. And I remember, I think it was in, I think it was in London. So I, I learned a few things from a guy called Jason Helwig, who was the chef de mission of the Australian Paralympic team. The first one was in Beijing, where all of the journalists and presenters were called into a meeting. And he said, look, you know, <clears throat> I'm just going to run you through all the athletes are and blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, I'm going to say this to you right now. These are elite athletes. These are elite athletes who have trained their butts off their whole lives, but it's in particular over the last four years to get to this moment, to push their body to its limits. If you cover this sport with that in mind as sport, as elite sport, they will love you and you'll do it justice. If you talk about this as if it's disability sport and isn't it great that they're all having a crack and how inspiring they are, you won't do them justice. So that was the first lesson I learned was cover the sport first. And, you know, the, after a while, you forget about the disabilities, you're watching the sport. But the second thing, when, when we got to London, I was talking to him and we, T, um, Paralympics GB were very wary of putting some of their athletes on the last leg. Uh, and in particular, talking about their disabilities, because they wanted people to focus on the sport. And what Jason said to me was, well, I've told all the Aussie athletes, if someone asks, tell them the story, because we need profile. We need people to get engaged with the sport. And the way they become engaged with the sport is to know about your story. So don't shy away from your disability or explaining how it came about. That's all part of your story. And that's going to make people connect with you and then want to support the Paralympic movement more. So you're exactly right. It, it's for me, the, the, the stories that go on, the stories that are there behind every athlete, give it just that extra level of triumph until and as i'm saying all this i'm still remembering one athlete i don't think it was london i think it was in rio and i just remember the commentator <laughs> saying 
and it was it was visually impaired running and i remember him saying uh of course you know describing the guy and said lost his lost his eyesight in a in an accident on his farm with the family donkey and we, he was like mm -hmm. lost his eyesight in one eye three years later lost eyesight in the other eye in an accident with the same donkey <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so many questions <laughs> <laughs> so many questions so and i guess that sums up our approach to the paralympics i mean is is that yeah there's drama and there's stories and there's triumph but it's also funny yeah and that was the other thing i learned from jason you know some of the jokes that were made in 2008 around the paralympic village were just i mean i still can't tell them on television <laughs> <laughs> so that was the thing you know we used to train side by side with the paralympic squad we were one big team in the track center so right. you know it wasn't so much you're the paralympic squad you're the able-bodied squad it was you're the sprint group so all the sprinters train together all yeah. the endurance train together and yeah and and the, the key thing was as you just said there they want you know the paralympic riders wanted just to be not be defined by their disability but just be i'm a sprinter i'm on the team and they didn't want you to step around talking about their disability they were very open very like very blunt about it and as you say the humor you can't repeat some of the, the jokes and the stories <laughs> they would they would tell about themselves and about each other um but it was just you just take me seriously as an athlete that's all they wanted to be an equal to be seen as an athlete as an elite athlete as they were um and and therefore it was quite hard or quite bizarre because you get used to that, to, to hearing or seeing the other attitudes of people of, you know, the, the patronizing attitude, oh, haven't they done well and good for you? It's, you know, it's, I remember, well, um, Jody Cundy in, in London, when he, he slipped at the start in the kilo and didn't get a restart. He was, he was a nailed on sure, you know, dead fire cert gold medalist in the kilo. And he was a world record holder and it didn't, it didn't happen. He slipped and he didn't get a chance to ride. And he was furious and he was shouting, he was kind of, you know, he was in this state of absolute anger. And I think it was, it was this, everyone was like, well, there were a lot of people quite shocked by that. It's like, well, oh, you know, goodness me, I've never seen that before. I was like, well, he's an athlete. He's an elite athlete. He's trained every day for the last 10 years for this moment. This was his moment. And that is the frustration that shows it's not about just turning up and well done and patting the head. Good for you. You're doing your best. These these are elite athletes, and they have the same frustrations, the same highs, the same lows as every other elite athlete you've seen compete in the Olympic Games or other championships too. And um, yeah, he was that was a that was a standout moment for me at the, the London Games. Definitely, that mo I, I agree. And, and uh, that moment did as much to change people's perception of disability as all of the gold medals and all the advertising and all the stuff we did on the last leg. That moment, exactly. That's mm. when people realised, oh, you're taking this seriously. Yeah. You your butt off to get to this point. No, I, uh, I firmly agree. I mean, I feel for Jody. Uh, I mean, he's doing fine now. I think he's all right. <laughs> yeah, he's he's won about twenty gold medals since then. <laughs> yeah, he's not but sure. I think in a weird way, the Paralympic movement needed that moment to happen for people to fully realise what what's entailed. Yeah, exactly. But you do you think you know you're saying that when you were younger, looking, you know, you didn't think the Paralympics were for somebody like yourself with a relatively minor disability. Do you do you think that the games are now reaching out to a much wider audience. They can young kids can see athletes that have a similar disability to them, and think, well, actually, that could be me. I could become a, a swimmer, a cyclist, uh, you know, any sport that, that I enjoy doing. That that is a possibility, and that could be a, a career path for me. Absolutely, and you were already seeing it in in 
you know, half the half the athletes that competed in in Tokyo were inspired by the people they saw in London because you got to remember you you got you know people who are now twenty were well twenty in Tokyo. I'm not my maths isn't great, but they were like <laughs> ten or eleven, for instance, in London. And so you've got swimmers that that grew up watching Ellie Simmons and runners that saw Johnny Peacock when they were ten. And now they're 20 and they're actually competing and they're winning gold medals. So you're actually seeing the physical evidence every every Paralympics that come around. What was your sporting background when you were growing up? Was it rugby was your main sport or did you do, being an Aussie, you must have done everything. You Aussies are good. <laughs> Just all round. You must be born with this gene. There's a sporting gene the Aussies have where they're good with hand-to-eye coordination, good at throwing things, good at catching things. You must have been one of them, surely. I think it's the outdoor life. I think you just have to. Like... Yeah, so I grew up, the rugby league was my big love as a kid. Um, I grew up following the South Sydney Rabbitohs rugby league team because um, my dad brought a red and green toy rabbit into the hospital when I was three days old. <laughs> um, so rugby league I loved, but then I also played tennis from about the age of five. And then at high school played rugby league but still kept um, playing competitive tennis. So it was a bit of both. I think I probably got to about the age of 13 and I couldn't keep up with the kids on the rugby league pitch. And I was a pretty small, skinny kid as well. Um, and so then tennis became my focus. So from probably 12 to about the age of 21, 22, I played competitive tennis against, against able-bodied people. Um, and then I ended up coaching. I coached for a couple of years when I was at university. So tennis became my big focus. Um, and then, you know, comedy took over and, and all of that. But it's weird now because a few years ago I discovered Disability Rugby League and I, and I think because I got to 13 and then I, you know, couldn't keep up, I, it was never, you know, I played as much tennis as I possibly could, but I didn't get to go as far as I could with Rugby League. So when I discovered that Warrington was starting up England's first Disability Rugby League team, I, I became obsessed by it. But what I've realised is, you know, there's a couple of guys in that team, two or three guys in our team, that play against able-bodied rugby league players. So there's one guy with nystagmus, so his his vision's, you know, severely vision impaired. There's a couple of guys that are missing arms or that have got limb deficiencies that actually play able-bodied rugby league. Wow. And I was kind of talking to them about how amazing that is that they did that. And then one of them went, yeah, but you used to do that with tennis, right? And I was like, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to... I used to play tennis and then kids would come off the court and go, what happened to your foot? And I'd go, oh, it's a prosthetic leg. And then they'd feel really bad if I'd beaten them. <laughs> <laughs> what about yeah. like, playing rugby league now? Do you not, I, I couldn't imagine playing rugby now. My body would just get so battered by, uh, I mean, it, it, can you take the physicality still? Or? I'm starting to, after five years and at right. the age of 53, I'm getting to the point where I might have to <laughs> think about it. I mean, there is a, I don't know. There's an adrenaline hit and an addiction that comes from the bruising. <laughs> I think from putting your body through a fair amount of pain, um, I do enjoy it. But what I've noticed in particular is my left leg, which is my good leg, the non-disabled one, it's the one that's getting injured because it does so much. I guess it takes so much extra loading. So uh, 2018, I fractured my ankle. Um, just got caught in an awkward tackle. And then last year I uh, tore my hamstring on the left-hand side again. <clears throat> and then about three, four months ago, I tore my IT band in the hip. 
um, which is a pretty Please. serious one. They've, they've kind of said it's like six months until I can play again. So I might be getting to the point where it is, but it's addictive. You know, you, it's well, I'm impressed that you're still doing that because yeah. I, I mean, I, I sneezed the other day and I popped a rib. So, you know, <laughs> it's the fact that you're playing rugby league on a pitch, that's a tip my hat up to you. Well, my thinking was, you know, at this age, an injury now is an injury for life. And I'd rather it happen playing rugby league than bending over to pick up the remote control, <laughs> which is just as likely. Yeah. It's that feeling you don't, you, you get to the age when you wake up in the morning and you don't know if you're injured or if this is just the way it is now. You know, that, that kind of, <laughs> oh my God, back hurts and neck stiff and your legs are so, it's, but yeah, it's a great advert for just keeping moving, isn't it? If you, the longer you, you stop, between you know if you, if you have a few weeks off the bike or a week's away from the gym and you get back into it it's just so much harder to get get moving again but i guess the key is don't stop just keep moving well and so the interesting thing for me yeah i've i've, I've had a few months of not being able to exercise and i found it really tough but what i've also discovered is so when i was in beijing in 2008 for the paralympics the end of the games, um, the coach of the wheelchair tennis team kind of came up to me and said, is it true you used to be a tennis coach? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, do you fancy playing wheelchair tennis? And I said, well, I, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, I don't use a wheelchair. And he said, no, we'd have to teach you. And I said, this still doesn't sound right. <laughs> and he said, look, have a think about it. And then I caught up with, again, Jason, the chef de mission, um, probably a month later, we had a coffee. And he said, look, if you if you want to do this, we're dead keen because most – most wheelchair tennis players use a wheelchair, but they don't know how to play tennis. You know how to play tennis. We've just got to teach you how to use a wheelchair. He said, but you've got to start living in a wheelchair so that it becomes second nature. You have to do 30 hours a week in a wheelchair. Wow. And at that point, I was hosting a TV show. I was doing stand-up comedy. I said, look, I'm not sure I can do this. And he said, I remember him saying at the time, the best thing you can do for the Paralympic movement right now is tell people about it. And then he came up to me in London and he went, and you're doing it. So well done. <laughs> But, and I've always had this little, you know, every, every now and again, it pops up again. Do you want to try playing wheelchair tennis? And something's always held me back about it. And I couldn't work out what it was. And then a few years ago, I was looking around online and I discovered there's not really disability tennis for anyone not in a wheelchair. It's either able-bodied or you're in a wheelchair. And, and half the people in wheelchairs have got the same disability as me. You see them get up between points, between games and walk around, yeah. and stretch their legs and then get back in their chair again. And so I did a little bit of research and then I found this little Facebook page for adaptive tennis. And I started looking into it and I contacted a few people and there's now this little underground movement of what they're calling para standing tennis. Uh, and I called this, I, I followed this guy, this short statured guy in Australia, 17 year old tennis player. I followed him on Instagram and he instantly sent me a message saying, my dad wants to talk to you. <laughs> It's not good when you've just followed a 17 <laughs> um, And then his dad called me up and said, listen, I run parastanding tennis in Australia. We'd love to have you on the board. I'll put you on the wow. international board. Um, and so in the space of a few months, I've now become like a board member of international parastanding tennis. Amazing. So what would, it, what would it take to get that included in the Paralympics? I guess there's lots of hurdles to get through before you could be part of the Paralympics. But surely, I mean, that... It's only you explaining that now that you kind of think, well, geez, that seems obvious. Surely there must be an opportunity to play tennis that if you're not having to play in a wheelchair, um, yeah, it seems, yeah. seems like a really obvious thing to do. And they've, it's only recently they've introduced para badminton. And so we're using pretty much the same classification. So there's four classifications. There's short statured, 
there's double amputees or quite restrictive cerebral palsy, there's uh, arm amputees, and then there's below knee amputees with levels of cerebral palsy in there. But no, you're exactly right. And from what I understand, it, it kind of depends if it's if it's considered to be a whole new sport or a version of wheelchair tennis. But if it's a whole new sport, you have to apply, I think, seven years in advance. So, I mean, I'm thinking Brisbane 2032. Wow. But we're, we're kind of serious about it. We've got, I've got a meeting at the, the LTA next week. We've got ITF. The, the International Tennis Federation have said they'll they'll support, you know, we can use their logo. So it's just, it's interesting. It's just in the last six months, this thing has started to really take off. And so, you know, just as I've injured my hip and possibly can't play rugby league anymore, it's it's entirely possible I'll, I'll just get obsessed by tennis again now. So as you said, I'm going to keep moving. Can, can you then, do you have to speak to the Grand Slams? Because obviously the wheelchair tennis come quite big at sort of Wimbledon, US Open, et cetera, and the, the Gordon Reed and Alfie Hewitt, the ones that spring, mm. spring to mind. Did, do you then have that conversation or is that too too far away to have aspirations for that? Oh, we've de- we're definitely hoping. We're, yeah. we're, there's, a, there's a tournament that's been organised um, by this guy that I spoke to in Sydney, uh, sorry, in Melbourne next year, the same time as the Australian Open. Uh, we we did speak to the Australian Open and they went, look, we don't know that we've got the resources at, at the moment, but I think basically they're going to watch what we do. And if it works, they're definitely going to have an all an all abilities day at the Australian Open, mm-hmm. like an exhibition. So, but yeah, I, I could see, because you don't need anything. You just need some courts and, you know, the back end of those tournaments, all the outside courts are free. So it's definitely doable. Yeah, I, I would imagine you know within two or three years, I think we can probably get these at the at the Grand Slams. How cool would that be to be part of something that you've actually been instrumental in, in bringing to the fore? That would be that would be amazing. It's it's kind of I mean, and look, we we did a similar thing with Disability Rugby League. Like 2017, I went up to Warrington for the first time, and I took a camera crew with me to make a documentary because I find that if there's a camera on me, I'm more likely to do ridiculous things. <laughs> because <laughs> i'm a massive show off um but i remember saying in the camera look look what i'd love is we start up this disability rugby league team with warrington we get a few more teams we get a local league we have a club challenge against the best team in australia and then in 2020 uh or 2021 we have a rugby league world cup physical disability rugby league world cup and then the only thing the only thing that didn't happen was the world cup was put off by a year because of covid but it all happened so we there's now six, eight, might even be ten teams playing in the north of England with disability teams, and the the disability rugby league World Cup took place last year. Australia, New Zealand, Wales, and England, and England ended up winning. So, I read a great quote recently: um, "All it takes for something amazing to happen is for one person to have a lot of enthusiasm." <laughs> <laughs> so, That's what happened with this podcast, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually very true you got to pull an australia jersey though didn't you for the for the for the world cup i did and there was yeah. a big so we, we made a documentary about that it's actually on um channel four august 11th it's called well i'll, I'll explain the name in a sec the, the name it's called grow another foot and the reason it's called grow another foot is that i was technically eligible to play for england and the england coach is a guy called sean briscoe who played fullback for england able-bodied back in the day and who's also one of my best mates i love sean and we've spent a lot of time together and we played together because when you play disability rugby league you 
you're allowed to have one, uh, two able-bodied players on the pitch with you to facilitate. So they can't um, score tries. They're not allowed to kick. They can't run more than 10 metres without offloading. But you just, you learn. I learned so much playing alongside Sean and we became really good mates. And so he was the England coach and he said to me, well, I think you qualify for England. And wow. he, he got me along to, there was an origin game. It was uh, Yorkshire v Lancashire. So I played for Lancashire. And he gave this big speech about how this could be your chance to represent your country and everything. And eventually I kind of went out and we filmed it on the documentary. I said, look, I've, I've thought this through, but the, the honest truth is I don't get heart flutters when I think about playing for England. And I said, I think you want someone who's going to have heart flutters at the idea of pulling on the shirt. And he said, yeah, when you pull on your country's shirt, you should grow another foot. And I said, well, if I could do that, I wouldn't be playing disability. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was an amazing and, – and I wasn't sure if I'd made the right decision, but I remember in the Australia camp when they came out and gave us our kit, we put on our track suits and our hats. It was – I had it. I, I stood taller. And I ended up playing – I don't know. According according to the coaches, I played the best game they've ever seen me play for Australia, because then well, there you go. I did, you made the right call then. Yeah, absolutely. And we got we got beaten. We lost every game, but <laughs> but I played. I got that thing. I got to play for my country. Got to play with a whole amazing group of blokes and play the best rugby league I've ever played. So it's and that's this is why I think disability sports really really important because it's not just about giving people with a disability the chance to play sport. It's giving them people with a disability don't get the chance to be part of a team. And until you're part of a team, you don't know what that feeling's like, especially on a rugby league pitch where you're literally putting your bodies on the line for each other. You're on a pitch with, with a whole bunch of other blokes and you've got to trust each other and you've got to work together. And that's a really special bond that you form and you go on tour together and you do all of that stuff. So it's not just about the playing the sport. People with disabilities don't always get the chance to do that. And they don't get the chance to know what it's like to represent their country. So all of that, when I started on this disability, on, on the rugby league journey, I felt guilty because I was having so much fun. I was getting so much out of it. And I thought, this isn't about me. This should be about everybody else. This, I'm here to, for everyone. And then one day I looked around and went, oh, hang on. They're all getting as much fun out of it as I am. We're all, we're all getting this boost. So, yeah, it, it's, I think I've become a bigger advocate for disability sport because of the social effects of it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
do you see the the Olympics and the Paralympics eventually combining, or do you think is it is it would you rather keep it separate and say, do you know what we are, you know, we don't need to be part of the Olympics. We are an amazing event on our own, you know, because there's there's I've spoken to different Paralympic athletes who've had polarized opinions about the the thought of combining the two. Yeah, I'm I'm really on the fence with this one. I don't know. I, I waver because you're right. The idea, <clears throat> like the Commonwealth Games, are great because they have the able-bodied and disabled athletes all competing together. There is no disability then. You've got you've got the sprinters and you've got the people in wheelchairs. And a medal all, is a medal. The gold medal counts the same. It doesn't, you know, it's they're all the currency is a gold medal, and it doesn't matter which event it is. It's all exactly the same. Exactly, exactly. But then on the other hand, you know, the logistics of combining the Paralympic athletes with the Olympics means probably not all the same events will exist. You probably have to cut a whole bunch of events. Also, the Paralympics is such a unique bubble, such a unique sporting event in and of itself that, I don't know, part of me thinks it's sometimes even cooler than the Olympics. Or at least... Well, I said that. What's the timeline? Thanks for the warm-up um, after, <laughs> after the Olympics. You know, that was, was that the Channel 4 advert? I think it was. It was the montage of the Paralympics and it says, thanks for the warm-up. You know? Well, it was, and look... You know, that's. I think that the Channel Four have to take an enormous amount of credit for for what they did for the Paralympics and the Paralympic movement. And and part of that, listen, I'll be honest, probably a lot of that was mercenary. You know, you're a TV channel, you've got a show to promote, you've got to find the best way possible to promote it. But I think in the past, certainly here, but I think around the world, the network that had the Olympics also had the Paralympics, and so sometimes it felt like a bit of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. But because Channel 4 had it and they wanted to stick it to the BBC, they wanted to do a better job of, of the Paralympics than the BBC did to the Olympics. So when they found that kind of really edgy attitude about it, yeah, you're exactly right. Those posters, thanks for the warm-up, were amazing. <laughs> and then to follow that with the the ad for the Paralympics with Public Enemy playing. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Like that was – and every, you know, every four years they come up with a new campaign and they work really hard with an amazing advertising company – not just to find out what's going to hit, but they talk to the disability community, they talk to the Paralympic athletes and find out how they're feeling. So there was this there was this interesting progression in that the first year it was, um, you know, meet the superheroes. Mm. And that was great. It was like these guys are, uh, you know, a level above and everyone was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then the next year it became, yes, we can. And the ad was, yeah, they're superheroes, but they're also brushing their teeth and they're having breakfast and they're doing normal stuff. But how amazing are they? And then they got feedback from the disability community saying, this is amazing, but what's happening is people are now thinking everyone with a disability should be able to do everything in life. (laughs) Because if those are superheroes, why aren't you a superhero as well? And so then for Tokyo... They kind of, I remember at the very end, they, they showed the realities. They showed burst blisters. They showed people not being able to get into a coffee shop because there's not a ramp there. And at the very end, super, superhuman, that's what it was, wasn't it? Superhuman came up on the screen and then a, a, a botcher ball knocked out the word super and it was just left with human. And so there's this been real progression in disability awareness and the way they treat disability of, yeah, they're heroes, they can do anything, and then... But they're also human, and there's a lot of blood, sweat, tears that goes to getting to this point. So there's been a, a so much thought go into that campaign. 
it's interesting you mentioned that about you know just wheelchair access as a, a as such a simple thing. Um, a friend of mine, she was a double Olympic champion for the German team and was heading towards Tokyo, you know, as a, a favourite to win another gold medal. Everything was great. 11 times world champion. And then just this random accident in training. She was she went into the back of another rider and was paralysed. And about six months after the accident, I went out to Berlin to, to, to interview her with the BBC and to chat to her and see how she's getting on. And incredible, incredible human being. Like just amazing how she was like, this is the situation I'm in. I cannot change it. There's no point looking back. I'm looking yeah. forward. I'm looking at what what can I do? And from what I can do, how can I do it to the best of my ability? And and just this unbelievable, you know, no bitterness and no, and it was almost like this, she's dealing with it so well, it has, has it really sunk in yet? Um, but anyway, the, the point of the story is we went, we, we did the filming and it was quite an emotional thing to do and it was it was difficult, but amazing. And then we said, right, let's go and get coffee. Like, cool. So, and I had this little app because I'm really into my coffee. I was like, I had an app and I was like, right, whenever I'm in a new city, I'll look, look at this app, see the best coffee. Let's go here. Great. We'll go to this one. And then she's like, um, oh, um, what about wheelchair access? And, and you kind of go, oh, you know, there was nothing on there saying whether it was or wasn't accessible. We yeah. got there. We couldn't get in. There was a massive step to get in. And it was wow. just like, and, and you suddenly realise it's not, it's not the big things, I think, that, that were the hard, you know, obviously dealing with this massive change in our life. It was like, right, this is, everyone focuses on that. But it's the little things on a day-to-day basis that she said she struggled with because it was just like, you know, it's just another reminder that people aren't thinking about people like me. They're, 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 I get overlooked. You know, yeah. it's great to, to celebrate all my, you know, if she, the Paralympians were all keen to celebrate their success and to, as you say, elevate them as heroes when they're winning gold medals. But also let's not forget their day-to-day struggles of just, you know, the basics of the things that we take for granted that they have to cope with and manage and deal with. Tani Gray Thompson, you know, her, you follow her on social media. Yeah, yeah. Her train journeys, just getting around, you know, the, the basic things that you, you wouldn't even have to consider. It's It just opens your eyes. And I think having platforms to talk about these things, the things that aren't quite sexy and quite quite as exciting as, you know, standing in front of 50,000 people and winning a gold medal, which is amazing. But it's also talking about, I think, the mundane stuff, which... Mm-hmm. You, you don't even consider if you're not in that position. And I'm guilty of that as well. So I, I invested in a restaurant in um, South London in Parsons Green earlier this year. And I went down and saw the site. And look, I know nothing about restaurants. I just knew that this chef was amazing. Uh, and he's he's a friend that I'd met. Um, and I wanted to help him out. So he, he showed me around the restaurant. And I'm like, <laughs> remember him showing me the kitchen saying, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. It's your kitchen. I'm a comedian. <laughs> if you like it, I like it. That's fine. <laughs> and we, you know, sort of saw the whole thing. And then I tweeted about it. And then someone said, is it wheelchair accessible? And I thought, oh, man, it never occurred to me. Like, I should be, if, if anyone should be aware of it, it's me. And so I rang up Scott, the chef, and I went, look, can we make, how hard is it to make a wheelchair accessible? And he was like, oh, yeah, right. I hadn't thought of that either. And then we just got a ramp. Like, it's not that hard. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That coffee shop that you and your friend went to, how hard would it be? Like, what's it going to cost to get a ramp? Yeah, it's, yeah it's exactly. It's probably 50 quid at the most, maybe 100 quid if you're lucky. Yeah. That's it. And then yeah. I remember I did, a, um, I did a, a pilot for a TV show once in Belfast with a guy who had dwarfism. And, you know, I spent a week living life with him. And then at the end of the week said, you know, what would what could people do to make – the world more accessible for you. And he honestly just said, 
just give us like stools, plastic stools. You know, those little steps. He said, I don't yeah. need an accessible hotel room. I just need a stool in there so I can get on the bed. Yeah. And I guess until you've experienced that, you just wouldn't know how much of a struggle that, that could be. Yeah, exactly. But it's but when you find out how simple it is to actually fix stuff like that. So now our restaurant's got a ramp and anyone can get in. Piece of cake. And that's why I love the, that last campaign, that Paralympic campaign, because it also showed the reality of of um, what showed the reality of what it's like to have a disability. And I th- also what I loved about Tokyo. So every every Paralympics, um, they plan their organization based on what happened two games earlier, because, you know, they get the games and then they start planning and it's like an eight or nine year period. So Rio we're already halfway through their planning when London took place, but Tokyo had just started and they went, right, we're going to use, we're going to see what London did and we're going to use the Paralympics as a way of creating disability awareness. Mm-hmm. And so Paris would have taken on board what both London and Rio did. So they're going to make a concerted effort. So it, it now, again, partly because of Channel 4, and I don't take the credit for that, that was Channel 4, Every Paralympic Games, they're now using the games to create more and more awareness. So it's it's kind of it's achieving the social good that that Dr. Goodman hoped for. I wonder do you, when you talked about being asked at twelve years old or whatever it was to try a Paralympic sport. Do you, do you if you could wind back the clock? Do you think you know what you do now? You would have given it a go. And what oh, sport, absolutely. What sport might you have? What Paralympic sport might you have tried? Or I guess maybe that's impossible to tell. Well, that's an interesting thing as well, isn't it? Because I reckon if there had been tennis if there had been standing disability tennis or disability rugby league when I was 12, I might've done it. And I think if I had also, if I had seen what it was, like if I had seen people like me competing, cause like I said, for me, I just thought disability sport was people. Cause I had, I've got such a small disability. It really is just the bottom of my right foot. Um, in, in the game of disability tr- top trumps, I'm really not worth that. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, I think probably two things would have would have tempted me to take it on when I was 12. More visibility of the sport, so I actually knew what it was, and probably the sports that I wanted to play, which were at that point tennis and rugby league. But yeah, maybe I mean maybe I would have taken up swimming, maybe I would have done um running. I didn't necessarily enjoy them that much. Uh I prefer running after something like a rugby ball or a tennis ball or a rugby player. But yeah, just the visibility, like and making it look cool, like it—it it sounds childish, but you know, after after London, after Rio, after Tokyo, it just looks having a disability looks really cool, and that's what you want kids to aspire to. I mean, that thing of in London, people there were kids running around imitating the way uh, Richard Whitehead would run, yeah. um, or cutting legs off their Barbie dolls and putting <laughs> prosthetic blades on it. Awesome! That's exactly what you want. Well, it's like Jody Jody Cundy again. Um, like he posted a couple, a couple of pictures of his his prosthetic leg ahead of the world championships and he's sprayed it red. He's got different stickers on it and sort of customizing it for these championships. And it is, it's, I think the carbon fiber and all these sort of, you know, futuristic sort of elements to it. It's like, yeah, it's not, we're not rolling a trouser leg over it. We're not trying to hide it. We're not, it's, this is who I am and I'm proud of this. And I'm, you know, going to show other people out there in a similar situation that they can be proud of theirs too. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I wish I had realized that when I was 12, um, even to the point where I always had my prosthetic was always just painted flesh colored because that's, it fits in like that. And then after London and you got in, in particular Jody, cause he had the union Jack prosthetic leg. Mm. 
then it became like, oh, mine's really dull. I want mine to start looking cool again. <laughs> so <laughs> it is yeah. as simple as making it look cool. It's celebrating. I guess it's celebrating your your who you are. And, and you know, a, a friend of mine who went to the, the Paralympics, I think it was in Beijing for the first time, and he said it walking into the the dining hall was just this this moment where it was like, oh my goodness, look at this uh, this celebration of humanity, this this completely broad spectrum of all kinds of people from all kinds of heights and shapes and sizes, different disabilities, different parts of the world. And he said it, it just struck me that that you'll that the humankind will find a way to adapt and to deal yeah. with the situation they're in. He said there was a, a Chinese athlete who had no arms and was sitting eating rice with chopsticks using his feet with chopsticks. Wow. And he said, he said, could you imagine the the skill? And basically it's because, well, if you can't feed yourself, then you know you're going to go hungry. So you, you learn. You have, you know, it's just not like a haven't you done well, son? It's it's you know this this is the situation <laughs> you're in. You know, there's your bowl of rice, there's your chopsticks, off you go. Yeah. Um, and and it's and yeah, going back to what you were saying earlier on about the, the superheroes versus the you know the, the human that this is this is the practicalities of life. And he said it was just it was humbling and it was amazing and he felt proud to be part of it. And and it's yeah, there's so much yeah, so much you could tell the stories of all these athletes and it's it's often the bigger stories and the more dramatic stories that get the headlines but yeah the mundane stuff is for me i think it's it's equally fascinating absolutely and funnily enough i think i i think i know the chinese guy you're talking about and if he's a swimmer um i i ended up with a five minute routine about his race wow (laughs) (laughs) that was one of the most amazing things i ever saw was in beijing it was it was him no arms and just the the speed that he swam at, because in you know in the swimming you've got people with one arm or one leg or dwarfism or no arms, like the, it's all how restricted you are. And just watching how fast this guy swam and watching people cheer him, and yeah, it ended up that's a, like a five minute bit in my. That's how I ended my Paralympic routine was telling the story of his race. And the punchline was that he started off slow, but by the end he was really challenging for first place but he was beaten by a guy with half an arm. And I thought the joy of the Paralympics right there is that how often in life does a guy with half an arm get to go, wow, well, that was handy. (laughs) 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 But but I also, funnily enough, I also had a joke about going into the athlete's village and exactly that. And that was the words you just used, but being a comedian, I had to undercut it. So my line was, um, I, part of me thought, what a beautiful celebration of humanity. And another part of me thought, oh, my God, it looks like the cantina scene from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but I know every other Paralympian would have thought exactly the same thing. Amazing. We have to so, ask yeah. you about your own sporting misadventures since we're the, the title of our program. You perhaps touched on some of them, but have you had any sporting sort of mishaps that happened? Maybe they were rugby league ailments or something more embarrassing? The worst, if I think of the worst moment, uh, playing in the World Cup last year, the, the the Disability Rugby League World Cup. So the first game we played was a bit of a warm-up game. We, I mean, fair play. We landed on Thursday morning into London, drove up to Warrington, had a, had a training session that afternoon, and then the next night we played a warm-up game. And I'm going to go slowly through this progression, and you'll see probably where it's heading. So the night of the warm-up game, our halfback, Dino, said, oh, mate, I can't play. I've been throwing up all day. I don't know what I've eaten, but I'm I'm really sick. We're like, oh, okay, fair enough. So we played that game. 
And then three days later, we played England. Uh, half time, Jono just projectile vomited in the in the dressing rooms. Uh, and then after the game, threw up everywhere as well. Oh no! But and then but then we were right. We all sat around. We all okay. See where this is going. We all we all sat around and shared pizza together. Oh no! <laughs> uh, so then the next day, a couple more players went down with stomach bugs. Uh, the Tuesday night, we all went out to a, a we showed my documentary, um, which was called Take His Legs. And then on the way home, everyone stopped to get food from a takeaway on the corner. And I went, no, I'm not going to fall for this. I'm going to wait till I get back to the hotel and I'm going to eat something at the hotel that isn't going to give me food poisoning. <laughs> and I woke up at six o'clock the next morning throwing my guts up. Oh, no. And pretty much, and it was just constant. It was from 6 a.m. till about midday. And I, I remember texting the coach, like texting the coaches, going, "Oh, I'm in a bad way right now." And they were like, "Yeah, two other people have come down with it today as oh, well." No. And about midday, I te- about twelve thirty, I texted and went, "What time are you putting in?" Because we were playing that afternoon against New Zealand. I texted to say, "What time are you sending in the team sheets?" And the coach said, "We've just put them in. We've left you off. You need to rest." And part of me was relieved because I was massively sick, but another part was just so oh. devastated that. And by the end of that week. 10 out of 20 players had come down with the stomach thing. Blimey. It's terrifying though. Uh, You know, you you think, you know, the Paralympics or the Olympics, once every four years, and it could be not even once every four years, it could be once in a lifetime. That could Mm -hmm. be your one chance to compete at a major games. And you you get paranoid the closer you get because you start thinking, you know, you've done all the hard work, you've got through what you think is, we're there, I've got the kit, I'm on the plane, I'm going to the games. Yeah. And then it's like, but you could the night before you could pick up a bug. You could be unwell. And in in Beijing, we came in and two days before I got a, uh, an email through saying the the triathlon team that you're sharing a, an apartment block in the village with have all been wiped out with this diarrhea and vomiting bug. Right. And there's nowhere else for you guys to stay. There's not a spare. You know you're fully rammed in there. There's no hotels. There's nothing. You have to stay in this block. And so we had an emergency meeting and it was pre-COVID times, but now it seems obvious. But the, the solution was hand gels. You know, you yeah. don't shake hands, you don't touch lift buttons, you don't touch door handles. Um, it basically use hand gels after every contact, every yeah, situation. And don't go in the lift with people, don't shake right. hands. And, and it, you know, nobody got sick in our team. And it may or may not have been that, we might just got lucky, but... But the thought of this, the fear of, my God, we've got this far down the line, all the hard work, blood, sweat and tears to get to this yeah. point, and it could be taken away from you. You must have been absolutely devastated. Oh, sh- absolutely shattered. Absolutely shattered. And and I but I think being a comedian, I have often a slightly lower opinion of myself than most people. That's what we do as comedians. You're always a bit down on yourself. And I kind of wa- I ended up watching the game on my laptop in the room and I think the boys lost by eight points. So it was pretty oh, close. Yeah. And then the next morning I said to one of them, oh, I was gutted that I couldn't be there. And he just looked at me seriously and he went, we all were. Oh. And it kind of made me go, oh, yeah, right. Oh. Kind of, you know, you feel like you've let your teammates down. I mean, there's, you know, there's no way I could have played. But it's you're right. It's just one of those things. And I feel yeah. for it's so many things can go wrong. Like, again, for you, the night before might not be a stomach bug, just a bad sleep. You know, yeah. the fire yeah. alarm goes off. Yeah. Um, I fell off then- the bike in, in, in Athens six days before the big race. Um, I was just riding around the village. 
yeah. cooling down after a little session and um, went around a roundabout too fast because there was a bus coming on. I kind of skipped in front of it and the bike just lost traction and I went down and I lost a bit of skin. That was all it was. But it was that initial impact and you think, have I broken my collarbone? Have I broken a yeah. wrist? You know, and because again, that that would have been it gone, and you would never have known what was what was then due to happen because yeah. you wouldn't have had the chance. So, but that's, that's sport, that, isn't it? You know, it's it's so unpredictable, and there's so many variables in there. There's only so much you can do. Um, you need luck on your side as well. Absolutely, and then I think you know if you take that to the ex- well, for me, the extreme is probably someone like Johnny Peacock, whose entire event is over in ten seconds. <laughs> You've got yeah. four years leading up to 10 seconds. Then the tiniest little thing that can go wrong, whether it's the night before or even during your start on that in those 10 seconds, and that's it. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. pressure. Minus yeah. the margins. But that's it's, why sport's amazing to watch, isn't it? Because if, if you knew exactly what was going to happen, if it was predictable, it would be boring. But it's the it's the unpredictability of it that makes it and the emotion of it that makes it so exciting. It's I had a big conversation after the closing ceremony in Rio with Claire Balding sitting on the bus back to the hotel and we were just waxing lyrical about the joys of sport and why sport is is so socially important because it's theatre and it's drama and it's you learn about yourself. Um, someone, just in, someone just gave me last week for my birthday Matthew Syed book uh, about what we learn from sport and how it makes us great as people and the idea of what triumph is all about. I literally just started it last night. But, yeah, it just, you know, it's Claire and I, we were clearly preaching to the converted. <laughs> she loves her sport, doesn't she, Claire? She's so great to work with because she's just, she is so passionate about it and it's it's infectious. It doesn't matter. And the fact that she has this thirst for knowledge, no matter what sport it is that she's, she's working on, even if she's not working on it. So off camera, you know, I, you do your little piece and then it cuts to the live action and then we'll have other screens on with the basketball and the swimming and the, you know, whatever else, table tennis. And she knows the names of all the, the athletes from different countries. And she's, Oh, that's the guy. I mean, usually it's cause she's got a side bet on somewhere, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, um, yeah, she's, she's just this fountain of knowledge and so, and her, her enthusiasm is, is infectious. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've said, the best way if you want to make great live television the best way to make great live television in this country is to stand next to either davina mccall or claire balding it's true yeah claire is unbelievable you just i just watch her and go with her but also exactly that like the amount of research that she does she turns up with books and she's got pages marked and she knows statistics and but also she'll run through a bit and go, I think it would be better if we do it this way. She's virtually producing as she goes. Um, Have you ever worked with um, Hazel Irvin? No, I haven't. She's, she is incredible. And as Claire herself said, she's like the head girl um, who does everything absolutely. She's she's so disciplined. She says, Hazel's like the head girl. She, she says, I'm like the, the one behind the bike sheds having a cigarette <laughs> in comparison to Hazel. Um, she's, she's just, she's got this notebook of, Every single thing that she's the the preparation that she goes the the length she goes to for preparation is quite incredible and well they're both exceptionally mm. they are the best in terms of sitting in front of the camera in live situations adapting and dealing with all the you know I I, I hate it when you've got the, the the talk back in your ear and you're you've been asked a question you're just start, you know beginning some kind of response and then someone is going okay guys we've got thirty seconds to go on the VT on this and uh, you know cross, cutting across the thing so wind it up now don't forget to mention uh, you know the the next session and i 
I can't have a voice in my ear when I'm trying to talk at the same time. No, I'm terrible at it. I'm just, yeah. I, so because of that, I have such respect for well, for all you guys. You, you're professional broadcasters, not just former sports people that get to come in and talk a little bit about their old sport. It's it's so impressive to see, and you make it all look so easy. That's the, that's the key thing, I think, because it, it looks so easy. People assume that it is easy, but it's anything but. Oh, and listen, I have. There's a thing I discovered ver- very early on in sports broadcasting called open or switched which basically means do you want to hear everything that the director says to every single person or just the stuff that they're saying to you? Open means uh, it's everything. And Yeah, that's yeah. like I can't have anything. I can't have even stuff from me. It's like just, <laughs> just, get a, just get a hook and sort of grab it on my neck and pull me off. But it's time to stop talking. Just get them off. Well, yeah, having it. said that, if anyone talks to me, and it happened over the weekend, I was covering the rugby league for Channel 4. If anyone talks to me while I'm talking, like it, the same, if someone else is talking, I can listen to them and I can listen to a producer at the same time. But if I'm talking and someone says 30 seconds, um, I know it. I literally stopped talking over the weekend. <laughs> I was like, so you'll know that the next game. <laughs> at least you didn't put your finger in your ear that's right like, i think i think it's better to put your finger in your ear because then at least people think oh someone must be talking to him yeah there's an explanation for why you've suddenly stopped <laughs> mid-sentence otherwise yeah it looks like you've just frozen but yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm yeah the, the more i get and what's what's really interesting about the last leg is that Josh and Alex and I all set out to be sports journalists at one point in our careers. I went to university. When I went to university, it was because I wanted to be a sports journalist. When Alex was spotted by Channel 4, he was working as a sports journalist. And early doors, that's where Josh wanted to go as well. So we do all have a love of sport. And I think that's why the Paralympic shows work, because we we just love sport. But yeah, it's drama, it's theatre, it's, you know, even the, the look at the Ashes, the Ashes series that's just taken place. My God, every... Matt was wondering how long it would take you to get around to. You've done well to hold back <laughs> for uh, nearly an hour before mentioning a, it. A big chat to my manager last night, who's who he and I go to all the cricket matches together, and I, I was in Dublin over the weekend doing comedy, so I was exhausted yesterday, laid down and had a bit of a nap assuming that the test was going to be rained out and then he called me and i went the fact that you're calling me tells me what the result is <laughs> but then we had a, just a big chat about you know how great sport is how great test cricket is and also how great the writing has been around sport in general but in particular this last series and like jonathan liu the the guardian sports writer has just come out with some beautiful prose. Like some of the stuff he's come out with about baseball, about the ups and downs of the test series is amazing. And it's just, you know, it, I have arguments with my wife all the time because my wife is an opera singer and she always says there should be more funding for the arts and why does sport get so much attention? Why doesn't the arts get more attention? And I always kind of, you know, and what's sport good for anyway? And I'm always biting back going sport is just as valuable. Sport is art in its own little way. And it's drama and it's theatre and it's just as valuable for a society as arts and entertainment and science and technology and, and you know, English and literature and all of that kind of stuff. There's there's a real, you know, there's a reason that sport is as popular as it is. Because we were chatting before before you came on about 
I was trying to explain because Chris is not as into uh, Cross's cricket. What was so amazing about this series, the way that Australia, no one ever really got away from each other. You'd have, you know, someone would be slightly ahead in one in in one session, and then suddenly, you know, let's say England had done it, and then Australia would suddenly peg it back. And it was an amazing statistic. There was nothing like like just two wickets, three wickets, twenty five runs, forty nine runs with a difference in the results, which is ridiculous in in Test cricket. It never happens like that. It's never that close. It was just a wonderful series, wonderful advert for cricket. And and to then have the drama of, I mean, the excitement of of what they're calling Bazball, mm. the drama of the same old Aussies always cheating moment. <laughs> um, and then to have realistically the whole test decided by the English weather. Yeah. It's another level of drama on top of it all. <laughs> and I like they ended, they ended up all in a nightclub together and Ben Stokes was tweeting out at four o'clock in the morning to... Uh, to just clear up some confusion that they'd snubbed the Australians, which I loved as well. The idea they were out in a nightclub together, so it's great. Yeah, it's and that, again, that's the that's the amazing thing about about sport. And again, what I love about rugby league is that we'll thump each other as hard as possible on the pitch and sledge each other, but as soon as the game's over, it's hugs all round, and we're all best mates and we're all in this thing together. Um, and the, and in particular, I've noticed there's a rugby league community in this country that really comes together in, to, to support families and uh, with sick children and the like. So, but yeah, it's you know it's a game. We all know it's a game. Uh, and but it's life and death at the moment, isn't it? It's life and death when you're in the thick of it. But then it's the fact that at the end of it, as you say, you can shake hands and you can be friends. And and it's you know you'll meet guys you played against this year in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, and you've shared that moment together. You go, oh, I remember that match. And, and you'll see it from different perspectives, obviously, but it's it's that shared moment. And that that is one of the best things for me now as a retired sports person is looking back and meeting or just randomly seeing old rivals, guys that you never used to really speak to um, at the time because it was intense rivalry. And then you retire and all of a sudden the guard is down that you can be friends and, and reminisce about, about great times. And you saying all that makes me think of and I, I didn't see the footage of it, but I saw the still of it when Federer retired last year and there was some ceremony, on-court ceremony, and it's him and Nadal sitting next to each other holding hands, both tears streaming <laughs> yeah. down their faces. And I think that's the thing. You know, if you see sport from a distance, it's on the TV in a pub or it's, you know, someone's watching it at home and you don't really pay attention to it. I can see why you'd go, why are you even watching that? But regardless of what the sport is, once you once you put a bit of investment into it, whether it's Ashes or the tennis or golf, once you know what's going on, once you see the drama behind it and you know all the little intricacies, yeah, I, I could watch it for days. Oh, here's a question for you, though, Chris. Do you, did you have, because like you say, I've got that feeling with my teammates now that we'll always be mates forever. And I remember I saw Lee Breers, former Warrington player, being interviewed. And he said, when you've won something with a group of people, you'll see each other in the street in 20, 30 years' time and just have a look of, yeah, we won a thing together. As a cyclist, did you get that team spirit? You did, um, but only within certain events. So like the team sprint um, was the only thing I did together with other people. Yeah, you would, it was very much an individual sport, um, but I think we definitely have that because you're on a journey together. But you were very focused on yourself. It's quite a selfish sport as an yeah. individual sport, and I do have a bit of a jealousy of you know rugby as a great example. I've got a good few friends that play in rugby, um, 
I was at or my teammate Becky James married George North and so George obviously had all these rugby players it wasn't just guys from the Welsh team that were there they were all he played for the British Lions so you had English players you had Scottish players you had Aussies Kiwis and you suddenly realise this is it's yeah there's something about being in a team team sport that I'm quite jealous of because you have this forever and, and you go to war together you, you would do anything for mm-hmm. your teammate and they know that they do it for you and it's it's Again, I can't. I can't complain. I've had a, I had a lovely career. <laughs> so maybe, you know, I can't. Yeah. But if there was one thing I would change, I think it, it would be that to feel as if. I mean, you still feel as if you were part of a team, but there's a difference between putting your body in the line for somebody else. You know, tackling. You know that that the physical impact. That just that. Yeah, there's something about rugby. I think, as in particular, as a sport, um, yeah. you ha- you're, you're going to war together. All 15 of you lining up there, and it's it's a battle. Um, but at the end of it, you get through it and you realise, yeah, we did that together. It wasn't just a one-off thing. It wasn't just the one individual player that won the World Cup or, you know, whatever. This is this is about a team effort. Yeah. I mean, now I think of that and I think of, well, I think of two things. I remember hosting Stand Up to Cancer one year and we did it at Westminster Hall and I had an Aussie guy that was riding with me um, and we were rehearsing the whole thing and we went through the show and then there was one bit where the producers had thought it'd be great if we got some of my rugby team down and we tackled bags that had cancer written on it, like big tackle bags. And the rugby blokes came out on set and we all, you know, said, hugged each other and we ran through the thing. And afterwards, my writer just went, oh, I'm jealous. I went, what do you mean? He went, oh, I wish I had a group of people like that, that I was like, felt like I belonged in the team with and we had that kind of camaraderie. And in fact, one of those guys, our captain, Jason, is missing missing like three fingers and he's kind of got de- finger deformities and a hand deformity um, on one of his hands. Not only have, you know, we put our bodies on the line together and all that kind of stuff, he came up to me during a game and he just went, can you just hold my wrist for a second? I went, yeah, sure. He went, just hold it, just hold it here. I went, okay. And then with his other hand, he basically had dislocated his wrist. And with his other hand, he just popped it back in and he went, oh, geez, thanks, mate. And I went, sorry, did you just pop? Yeah. So for the rest of my life, not only have we played and won together, but I've held his hand while he's popped his wrist back. (laughs) Well, I'd like to help Jody Jody Cundy pull his prosthetic leg off one day. It was, I think it was just a really hot day and it basically suction it. It held so hard. Right. We're kind of in the track centre, like someone's holding Jody under his arm and pulling <laughs> like some sort of medieval torture. And uh, eventually it kind of came off and I went flying across the room. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, it, it is, there's, it, these are the things about being a teammate. It's not just about on the pitch or on the track. It's, it's the travelling, living, um, just being together for, for the whole the whole journey. And it's that's what makes it so special. It's, it's sport is a wonderful thing, and it's I could sit here and wax lyrical about it for for hours on end. But um, <laughs> listen, we've used up so much of your time already. Thank you, thank you for your stories. Thank you for your thank you for your time. What have you got coming up? Have you got any tours coming up or any shows? Or when's the last leg going to be on next? So we've got two more last legs this series. Yeah, um, grow another foot is the rugby league world cup documentary that goes mm-hmm. that's august 11th on channel four mm-hmm. um i actually produced uh executive produced another documentary about god alice ty who's yeah if you've got another couple of minutes alice ty is a paralympian who was born with basically what's called club feet we'll call them talipes bilateral talipes and she when we were doing tokyo 
she was in the studio she had a shoulder injury and she said to me afterwards oh, i want to talk to you i'm, I'm going to get my foot amputated and i was like what she said i just i can't walk properly on them i'd much rather have a prosthetic i have to walk around with crutches and i remember so i took her out and we had a leg chat because <laughs> i was like okay do you really want to do this i remember her saying i just want to walk and carry a drink at the same time all my mates can do that but i can't because i'm on crutches and so i was talking to my manager one day we were having lunch and he said what are you up to after lunch and i said i'm going to meet up with a paralympian called alice ty and he went oh great and i said yeah she's having a leg amputated and he went oh sorry to hear that and i went no she's really excited and he went that is quite a roller coaster journey you took me on. <laughs> wow and he said i hope someone's filming all this so i sat down with her and said like what do you think about making a documentary and she went, yeah, I'd love to. So I called the producer that had made my rugby documentary and we filmed, we basically followed her story from amputation through to competing at last year's Commonwealth Games. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. Again, it's just, it's one of those stories that, it's, it's a sporting story that, you, again, you only get with disability sports. So I think that's on August the 24th. It's called Amputating Alice. That's also on Channel 4. Amazing. Um, we'll have to keep so an eye out for that. Yeah, it's funny. And then I'm also, you know, hopefully the tennis will take off. I'm, I'm, uh, there's a, a superhero triathlon series at Dorney Lake on the 12th of August for families and people with disabilities as well. So it's, so you're you know, pretty quiet all in all. Then, not much <laughs> <laughs> so, and hopefully I'm going to be playing my first tournament, my first tennis tournament in September in Sydney. Oh, wow. So, and then I'm going to put cameras on that and hopefully that might be the next documentary. So yeah, there's a little bit going on. Cool. Well, thanks for taking an hour with us. That was, I'm impressed you fitted this in as well amid everything else going on. Do you know what? I mean, there are so many podcasts out at the moment and I'm starting to worry that there's nothing new I can bring to a podcast. And yet this has been the most enjoyable chat I've had in ages. Oh, thank you so much. Well, likewise, thank you so much. You've, and you about have brought... that, it's not often you just get to, you know, talk about how great sport is in general yeah, all we need is a couple of pints we can keep going for a few more hours <laughs> turn the cameras off <laughs> no i really enjoyed it thank you i've had a ball thank well, you so much thanks yeah. very much you're really an absolute star really enjoyed it thanks adam ah cheers thanks guys